This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another installment from our live Israel podcast tour and beginning to transition here a little bit into a whole list and series of business professionals. As I'm sure most of my listeners know, Israel has been dubbed Startup Nation for the incredible spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation, particularly in the area of technology and this relentless creativity and ingenuity that permeates the country has become a true banner of its progress and a reflection of its cultural ethos. Among the many business leaders and tech innovators that I had the privilege to interview during my time in Israel, I also focused specifically on a subgroup of female entrepreneurs and businesswomen, and I'm going to be beginning this broader business series with precisely such a woman. Miriam Schwab is a Canadian-born immigrant to Israel. She is one of the world's leading experts in the WordPress platform and is in the process of building the most secure, fast, and efficient websites in the world. Her dream, as she says, is to take on GoDaddy as the ultimate provider of domain services. I had the pleasure of meeting with Miriam at an accelerator in Jerusalem called Mass Challenge, which is housed in a beautiful historic building right in the heart of Jerusalem, right near the Machane Yehuda Shuk marketplace. I actually did two interviews there, one with her and one with another phenomenal inventor who I'll be highlighting in the near future. The rooms at the Mass Challenge were all made of stone and quite cavernous, so especially on my end, there's a little bit of echo, as I noted last week in my introduction, that some of the live audio quality sometimes is a bit challenged, although Miriam's, I must say, is excellent. And I'm very, very excited to launch this series on, again, business leaders, innovators, and especially on the female demographic therein. Throughout this series of business leaders, I'm also going to intersperse with some who are actually American-based, but who thematically fit beautifully into the roster that I interviewed in Israel. And of course, I will identify them in my introductions each time. But for now, let's go to Jerusalem and my conversation with Miriam Schwab. We are here with Miriam Schwab, sitting here in the Mass Challenge Accelerator building. Uh, and I really don't know what, what words I just said, so she'll explain that to me shortly, I'm sure. But how are you, Miriam? Thank God, I'm good. How are you? Doing wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Miriam, tell us a little bit about where you're from, uh, what your background is. I, I hear a distinctly Canadian uh, accent. Right. So tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, so I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Um, when I was in grade nine, my parents decided to come to Israel for the year. Yes, grade and nine. Clearly, you're Canadian. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I know that I was considering that and pasta. <laughs> uh, my parents decided to come to Israel for the year, and uh, at the end of that year, they said that was so great. We're going to stay, and I had had a very difficult time, so I went back 
to Toronto without them. And I finished high school. I lived with my aunts and uncle. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I hear all the time. I feel like this, we're going for a year thing, happens so often in both directions because the last person I interviewed uh, right before was the exact reverse where his parents were going, quote unquote, just for a year to Chicago and stayed. And then he ultimately came back. So it's, I guess people feel like they need to you know, kind of dip their toes in the pool slowly. Yeah, I think people are afraid to make that commitment to, in the beginning. They want to see how it is and then right. they like it. What did your parents do here? Like what brought them here specifically? I just, I remember growing up, they always spoke about Israel. It was always a conversation, um, but my grandparents were in Toronto. We have a lot of family there. Um, but my grandfather passed away, my other grandfather passed away, and it, I guess they decided that it was the right time to give it a try. Um, and so they just always felt that connection, I guess. So nice. So what was difficult about your uh, transition? I guess you came, you said, in ninth grade or after ninth grade? So I was here for ninth grade. Right, so that's a really tough time to come really high school. Really tough time. Um, I know people who have done that and, um, you know, not always successfully. So yeah. what, what was very difficult? Just the language barrier? Or? So there were a lot of issues. Ninth, being a teen is already hard, sure. right? <laughs> and then I come to a country and this was way back when. Israel was a different country than it is right. today. Um, culturally and the language barrier. I went from being to someone who had friends to having social difficulties. I went from being an excellent student to failing and not knowing what was flying. Right. And just everything was so hard for me. Thank God my parents were smart enough and my aunt and uncle invited me to come back so that I could finish high school successfully socially and academically um, and then be ready to come back to Israel on my own. Nobody forced me to. I decided to come back for the year like a lot of young North Americans do sure. for Yeshiva. And um, and then I fell in love with the country at that point. It's interesting. I was you know I was wondering if there would be kind of like a lingering bitterness because you go come somewhere and you're sort of rejected and you know, have this negative experience. Would you maybe not want to come back? There was totally bitterness. And on the one hand, I was like in my mind or my heart, I was like Israel is the place that I should be. But I really had had such a negative experience. I was like I'm never coming back. And then my mother said to me, you know, all your friends are coming for the year. Why don't you give it a try also? I thought I think I thought I might miss out on an interesting experience. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. Um, I came. I spent a year in one yeshiva, uh, not a year, a month in one yeshiva, and I did not last because I felt like I was still in high school. And I was like, I don't want any more rules in my life. I don't want people telling me how to dress, how to look, when to wake up, when to this. Right. So I actually left after that month, and I spent the rest of the year volunteering. Interesting. And I went to Ulpan to learn Hebrew. And in Ulpan, I had the most amazing exposure to different people that I had never been able to meet in my shtetli type of life. I grew up religious. Right. Um, my very insu insulated uh, life. And um, just all of that was like, wow, Israel is such a colorful, interesting place with so many interesting people. I had the best time. And so then I decided to stay. So it gave you a very different perspective on what was here and yeah. what kind of people. Did you meet a lot of immigrants, a lot of So there were a lot of immigrants, um, but also we had two nuns from Rome in our Ulpan who were sent by the Pope to learn the Bible in the original language. Huh. They were the best students. They I'll did not they mess were. around. <laughs> the Pope told me, it's like, you know, yeah. like, you know, the Bobbits are shlichem. They go out, you know, they have like, like This a, is our job, this so is what we're going to do. Yeah. We had a basketball player, this giant dude. Like, Interesting. It was just like fun, like you don't meet those people. But in Israel, you do meet those people. Right. And uh, I loved that. I, so. Um, and of course, immigrants as well, and other people going through similar things, transitions, trying to integrate. 
So it's just, ultimately it was kind of the diversity of the country and the colorful personalities that brought you back rather than, I guess, kind of that spiritual yearning or the academic, you know, intellectual side of things. So that was underlying, but I needed something that excited me to bring me back right. beyond my, I really, I did know in my head that we had learned um, this book called The Kuzari in high sure. school, and it's an amazing book, and it really changed my perspective about Israel and um, a lot of things. And so that informed me, but still, there's one thing to learn something, another thing to live it. Right. It's much more difficult to live things. So once I saw that I could like really enjoy myself here and like be learning and experiencing, then uh, I was open to moving back. Amazing. And I guess you were lucky that, you know, for some people they come here, fall in love with the land, and then staying is like a real act of sacrifice or maybe even an act of defiance if their family's back home. For you, they were already here, so it was kind of natural just to stay on, I guess. Right. So I have always, it's always been something that I'm very grateful for to have my family here. Um, Do you have siblings here also yeah. that came with? We've all come and gone, okay. almost all of us, at different points in our lives. My brother doesn't live here now, um, but still, most of us are here. My parents are here in Jerusalem, and that makes such a huge difference. I really, the people who come on their own without their family, that's a huge, huge sacrifice. It just means everything is a little bit harder, um, or a lot harder in, in many cases. So really, I'm very grateful that my parents made that leap at the time when I was in grade nine. I did not appreciate it, but now I'm super grateful that my kids' grandparents are here, you know, all that. It's amazing. When you talk to people nowadays, do you, do you advise them against making Aliyah? You know, it's like a common refrain that people say, either come when your kids are really young or wait till they're much older. Like I have my older two are teenagers, so now it's like, uh, you know, it's, even if I wanted to, it's, it would be like, you know, I'd be afraid to do it. Um, do, you, do you kind of advise people in that direction because of your experience? So for a long time I did, um, and I still think that parents should definitely consider it very, very carefully before they bring their kids at that age because it can be very, very difficult. But the country has changed in a lot of ways, including in how uh, immigrants are absorbed, including young people. So um, I live in a community a family moved there from Denver. They have teens. Their son is doing amazingly. What community He's super is it? Social. It's Efrat. Efrat, sure. Um, there's a new neighborhood called Dagan. So, amazing. And I keep meeting families where the teens are doing really well. So, just like everything in life, there's no hard and fast right. rules. People can have different experiences. I feel like if you move to a community that understands new immigrants, especially from Anglo countries, then kids can actually have a pretty positive experience. Yeah. What, what, did you, what do you think has changed about the country, is it just that there's more immigrants so that there's like a different culture of, I mean, there was, there was always a country of immigrants, so what, what's evolved? I think Nefesh Benefesh has had a huge impact, has created awareness. Uh, when we moved here, people saw North American immigrants as rich, and so if you're rich, you can handle anything. Uh, first of all, we weren't rich. And second of all, at the same time that we moved here, the Russian immigration was happening. This was in 91. And the schools were equipped to absorb the Russian girls that were coming to my school. They had special classes for them um, and a lot of support. And they completely ignored us Anglo immigrants oh, because there was this attitude, you'll be fine. And I think there's been a shift in that attitude. And there's an understanding that, yeah, they're not coming from a country that kicked them out or where they were persecuted. But it's still very, very difficult to culturally, language-wise, socially to move and, and professionally to move from a country like that to Israel and they still need support and the schools are also much more aware of that um, at this point and 
in particular in many communities like Efrat or Beit Shemesh or other places, you can go there and there's a lot of English speakers so your kids right. can kind of integrate easier. Although, caveat, that can be dangerous. Right, as well. I was going to ask if that yeah. was a, if some people are critical of that, you know, kind of come here and sort of move from one country to a sort of a bubble of that country within Israel, and then they're not prepared, kind of prolonging the inevitable adjustment to culture shock or whatever that might be. Yeah, so absolutely. I would recommend trying to find a balance and always making that effort to integrate with Israeli society. I've met kids who were born here or came at a very young age and they are having difficulty in school because they don't know Hebrew well enough. Right. What is that? That should not be the case. So it's very important to try to be surrounded by Israelis and be part of an Israeli community as well. But there's no doubt that being among English speakers really cushions the landing and that is critical for a successful Aliyah. Right. So when you came back, it sounded like you did some opine, you kind of got yourself back up to speed, uh, ready to go back into 10th grade or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what did you actually do with that time? Did you go to college? Did you, what was your process there? Did you make Aliyah? Did you already make Aliyah? Like, what did you do? So at that point, I still wasn't ready for the full commitment. But um, a number of my friends were applying to university here, uh, specifically Bar-Ilan University, right. which is in the center of the country. And they, at that time, had a lot of support for right. non-Israeli students. It's designed, really, for, I think, originally was kind of built in that, for that? Or oh, maybe. I think there's something to that in terms of what it was purposed for. They were very good at yeah. supporting us. So um, I applied as well. I got accepted to computer science. And a friend of mine who was in school with me from like kindergarten in Toronto, we ended up being roommates in the dorms oh, there. Cute. It was a great way to start here. Um, and they really, they had programming for us and like Shabbatons huh. and all sorts of really nice things. And we became a really fun group of friends. Um, it was just a, an amazing experience. I had a lot of fun there. Of course, I learned as well. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, and also, I see it as my Israeli boot camp experience huh. because being in university, especially at that time, it's a very bureaucratic institution. To sign up for classes, I had to carry around this like giant ream of papers and like proving who you were. And also, I could get the professors to say, yes, she can take this class, and I would have to stand in line. And one of my first like, Israeli experiences was, I'm Canadian, right? So of course we apologize a lot, all the time. We stand in line very politely. And I was standing in line to sign up for this class and I stood there for two hours because I assumed that anyone who came and went ahead of me must have been there first. Right. I just didn't notice until one point I'm like, no, they weren't here. So I learned to use my elbows. I also learned to speak Hebrew fluently while I was there in university. Um, I made Israeli friends and I felt like that was my first real uh, ex Israeli experience. Um, and that was amazing. So, so I, I went to university. That was my next step. And was computer something you were always interested in? What was the thinking about studying that particularly? Yeah, so I was always interested in computers and technology. My dad, bless him, would always buy me these tech magazines, including wow. programming magazines and books. Very unusual for, for young women. Right. My dad and especially like 25 never, years ago, whatever it was. Right, it's true. When my dad bought our first PC in the house, he bought two. One for him, one so that we wouldn't bother him. <laughs> and so I would spend a lot of time on that computer and I just, I loved, I just, I was fascinated by technology. What about it? It draws you in? Um, it just seemed like it could make the world a better place. Huh. And it was so cool what it could do. Like even at that time, they would talk about how in like five years they're going to launch a satellite and it's going to reach this planet and that planet and, um, you know, robots and artificial intelligence. They, I mean, today we're like way ahead, but even then it just seemed so incredible what it could do. 
So it always fascinates me. What was your first computer? It was a, what we called Apple, then. The Apple IIe or no, Commodore? No, Commodore. Commodore. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have such a special place in my heart for the Commodore 64. Wow, what an amazing, you know that they did a comeback with it? I was gonna ask if those, you know, with the old arcade games, they come back. They did, out. like they put like proper processing in it, but it's still like that giant keyboard thing. <laughs> that's oh, great. It was the best computer. Like <laughs> that's, really, that's it's like great. my first love. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that's why I want to study computer science, but I didn't know Hebrew well enough then, despite my Ulpan experience. Huh. So I didn't know what was flying and I actually, I failed that first year. So then I had to make a decision. I was at a crossroads. Either I stay in Israel and study something in English, or I go back to Toronto and I study computer science. And I decided to stay here. And at that time, the only thing they were teaching in English was English literature. So I actually ended up with a degree in English oh literature. Oh my goodness. <laughs> a highly useful, pragmatic <laughs> right? <magic> degree. <laughs> I know. It's like I, people are like today, because I'm in tech and we'll get into that, they go, so what's your background? <laughs> and what did you study? I go, English literature. They're like, oh, well, of course you did. <laughs> so I just wanted to be well-rounded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it actually, it was a really good experience in terms of learning to communicate ideas and prove uh, concepts and hypotheses. So, for example, I wrote a paper about how Shakespeare was actually a woman. And I found sources to prove it. And I wrote a whole paper about that. And that was really fun. But it's like, it actually taught me a lot that I needed to know about uh, business communication and marketing. Um, so yeah, so that's what I ended up studying. Interesting. But I guess all along you kind of knew or hoped that you would work in some kind of tech field, computer field? Yeah. And I didn't know how that was going to happen. But I was happy where I was at that time. And um, after I... Well, I actually had three kids while I was studying. Oh, okay. uh, and my <laughs> husband had some weight and I had three children. It's hard to study while you're giving birth. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's very impressive. You know? In Bar-Ilan, it's a religious university, so it's very common. Like, there were a lot of us mothers with babies, like... Nursing in class yeah. and all that kind of stuff, yeah. And the baby's crying, go out, and the professors were fine. Um, so after that, I got my first job. Um, after I had my third kid, I was like, okay, got to get a job. Um, and it was in the field of intellectual property. Okay. So that was my... It wasn't tech, but like the legal side? Of it was illegal. It was patent. Okay. I was a patent editor and I worked on the side of copyrights and I was consistently reading inventions. So I found that fascinating, the whole idea of protecting creations. Unfortunately, you couldn't steal them because you were in the patent office. Yeah, no, I could definitely not steal them. You should have seen some of them. You're like, there's no way. Um, very complex, but very fascinating. So I did that for two years, I think. Then I had my fourth kid. <laughs> And I was like, okay, as a mom, this like, you know, job where I have to show up every day to an office doesn't work for me right. anymore. Um, at one point, three of my kids got chicken pox, but not at the same time. Okay. So I had to keep telling my boss I can't come in. And I just, I felt like this is not the flexibility that I need. Um, and I should be able to have, there's internet, you know, computers, I can work from home. Um, and also I needed like more room to develop, like in terms of creativity and, and just professionally. And, so I decided to become a freelancer. At that time, it was just as a writer, because I studied English literature, it seemed like a natural progression. And I started to offer business content services, because Israeli businesses that are targeting overseas need proper English, essentially. Um, and I worked with some interesting companies, and then I started to teach myself how to build websites. And that was where I really started to get into tech. Gotcha. Had, so what about websites kind of drew you and how did that start? Well, I think a lot of the work that I was doing on the content side had to do with websites. And I saw... You were writing content for, for websites, websites like that? Yeah. And I saw how online and digital uh, communication was becoming increasingly essential. And um, 
the whole idea of websites and how to build them properly and well, it just, I think it really interested me. And also because as a freelancer who was kind of just getting started, I had free time, right? You don't, you're not like overwhelmed with clients. And so I used that free time to have Google as my teacher and start to teach myself. Um, so you just started website. reading or watching tutorials about how to create your own websites and yeah. how to build them and design and... Like with the basics, HTML and CSS, and I just started testing it out and then I would build some test sites and then I started to kind of offer it to people. Um, you were focused more on the tech side, like the, 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 the architecture, or yeah. more on the design? Yeah, so design also fascinated me and I did like teach myself the basic concepts of design. But I was never really a designer, although I do have an aesthetic sense, so I can tell when something is good or not and why. Um, but it was really more on the coding. I loved having a coding issue and then solving it. That to me was like the most exciting. Um, and me then too. I, no, 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 I know, right? <laughs> people are like, oh, what? I can totally relate. Yeah. <laughs> I know, such a key I love thing. having a coding issue and giving it to someone who can solve it. Or better yet, not having a coding issue. Right, it's true. But they exist and they're vitally important, so. They are, and there's something, well, for geeks like myself, there's something exciting about yeah, that kind of challenge. I can hear that, that process of kind of attacking a problem and, yeah. and resolving it. And yeah, seeing it actually like work. The results yeah. work. It's like you cheer. You're like, tangible, wow. Yeah. So, and then I evolved into um, content management systems for websites. And I fell in love with one called WordPress, which sure. is the most popular. Backend, basically. Yeah, right? yeah. basically. And it powers 30% of the internet today. It crossed the 30% line. Um, and at that time, it, it wasn't there yet, and it was only for blogs. But I just I saw so much potential in it. So and you just liked the way that it was built. You could tell kind of the its architecture, the guts of it were yeah. It just was smart and user friendly, both for on the developer side, but also for users who weren't developers. Right. Um, it was really revolutionary at that time. At that time, if businesses wanted a content management system, they were using these old, clunky, super expensive systems. Um, that had a lot of drawbacks. And at that time, enterprise companies weren't yet ready to adopt open source, WordPress is open source, um, for various reasons, you know, fears. They probably want to make money. I mean, that's the big fear well, of open source, right? Right, so the yeah, companies providing it. those platforms want to make money, but the companies themselves were afraid, you know, for security reasons, open source means anyone can see the code, and that seems very scary. But I started to offer it as a business solution um, for business blogs because that was becoming a big thing. And eventually the market shifted and people started to realize that open source is actually the benefits far outweigh the disadvantages. And Israeli companies started to look for WordPress providers. And I started to get a lot of work and I made my first hire and it turned into an, actually one of the leading WordPress development agencies in Israel. Wow, incredible. So I mean, I guess the value of open source with the counterpoint, I guess, kind of be that just like it's vulnerable, but it's also crowdsourcing the protections, so to speak. So, so there's, so open source means that um, there's a piece of software, and you and I can both download it, and you and I can both see what it looks like. But once it's installed on my server, if I secure it properly, you can no longer see that code. Okay, so that is one thing, and the other thing is that as a company, if I hire someone to build my website. I need to know that I'm not stuck with that person forever. Not because I don't like that person, but anything could happen. Right? Anything could happen. They could move. They could choose another career path. They could go out of business. If you choose a platform like WordPress, it means that you have a huge pool of options of suppliers who can take over if necessary. Right. Um, so that's another advantage of it. With regards back to security, so 
because the code is open, if there are any vulnerabilities, they are published for everyone to know about so that everyone will uh, fix it or patch it. That's the term. Right. There's a window of opportunity for hackers there, so that's the risk. But if people are properly maintaining and securing their websites, then that is reduced. And um, just the benefits of not having vendor lock-in and having the community creating new components and modules and access to all of that um, and the costs, of course. There's a cost of implement implementation, but the actual software is free. All of that, companies came to realize, are huge advantages. And so they increasingly turned towards WordPress as their solution of choice. So you started building this company that was basically designing WordPress-based websites for, for companies. Right, exactly. And you hired people under you to, that were experts at doing that as well, or you kind of managed the business side? How did you grow? So uh, in the beginning, I was building the sites, but then yeah. as we grew, I had to move, shift into more of a business development and marketing position, although I still always keep my fingers in it just to stay updated. Um, so hired, you know, WordPress developers, and um, we did the specification side of things, which is like what's called the user experience. So we had to have that expertise. At one point, we had designers in our team. We later left that out because our, our area of expertise really was the development. Um, and so they would have to, a company would have to contract a designer that would work with your yes, company? Yes, exactly. And we became really good at that format. Also, because we were working with high-level companies in Israel, they tended to have either in-house designers already or branding agencies that they worked very closely with. And it was very important to them that the, their visual language was retained. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that was, was in that format. So it actually worked really well. Um, so we generally worked on customized projects and... Um, so you weren't building websites for little mom and pops or small no, organizations that... No. In the beginning know, we were, but we shifted website for, away from you know, 500 bucks or whatever. No, no, no. This was big. Big custom <laughs> yeah. projects. Companies that cared and understood the value of having a well-coded site that performed well in terms of speed and security and met their needs and was mobile Right, friendly. I was say, it's a very constantly evolving. I know today exactly. it's like, the, what's the mobile loading speed is the big. Right, and know, also question. even search engine optimization, so we have that expertise. You know how to build the language into the website. Exactly, to, to make sure that the site is ready for search engine optimization, um, all of that, so so that's. And did you do a lot of back-end things for purchasing and. Oh, like e-commerce. E-commerce yeah. and and audio, video functionality in the back end. All, all of that, yeah. yeah. So like if a, content, a site had a lot of content, was very content heavy, so we would know how to manage that to make sure that it was efficient and not too expensive for them, didn't put a load on their server, things like that. Right. And with e-commerce, we've done some pretty complex websites involving inventory management in the back end, integration with third-party services, you name it. There's a lot there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Um, I can see your eyes light up when you talk about it. So <laughs> <laughs> you want, it's just proof that you love it. Where did that go to? I mean, did that, is that something you've been doing all along? It seems like at some point maybe you've departed or done different things. Um, did you just kind of, I mean, it sounds like it was a great company and, and could have continued on indefinitely. So what has that continued on and what's sort of the, been the, the life cycle of that? So the company still exists, but someone else is managing it. Okay, what's it called? It's called Illuminea. Okay, um, and you own it still. I still own it, but we'll see what happens with you that. Transition actually. that. But yeah. you, you've hired someone who's who you really felt was like an expert enough to actually manage the yeah. underlings. She um, comes from a Canadian web development agency, actually, and she I see really the bias here. Okay, I know. <laughs> another female <laughs> Canadian. Canadian. I know, right? <laughs> it's true. I didn't even really think about that. But um, subconsciously, <laughs> yeah, subconsciously, I'm like, hey, you're a female Canadian. Let's hire you. Um, so she she really gets the business and everything. So she's she, she took over the transition. It's been incredibly smooth and it's been amazing. 
Um, and the reason that that transition happened was that um, I've, I think I'm a little bit ADD in my personality. And I did that for like 12 years and it was amazing. And then I was like approaching my 40s and I was right. like, I need to do something different. New project, yeah. I need to learn something new. I need to try something new. And I really wanted to build something that was scalable. And I had had many ideas along the years, but I was having kids and managing the business. And I knew that it would not work for me to focus on some, like a product and build it out. But I got to the point where I was ready for that. My youngest was a whopping three years old. <laughs> meaning I didn't have out of the house, out of the, on like own. in university. In Israel, those kids are like, you know, riding the bus themselves. <laughs> exactly. I was like, yeah, you can, you can take care of yourself now. <laughs> Not exactly, but it wasn't a baby. I didn't have right. a baby anymore. And um, as I said, I had had many ideas, but then this idea came to me and I was like, this totally is needed in the world of the internet and I can do it. Um, Basically, the concept is that we take these open source content management systems like WordPress and we convert them to a more modern architecture called serverless, which basically means we remove the database because the database is what stores the contents for these websites and then feeds them into the pages that you visit. And while that database gives the website the power it needs, it also is actually its weakest point. That's where most hacking happens, and that's where performance issues come into play, where the site can become slow or servers can crash. Um, we just cut the website away from the database and publish it that way, but the user continues using the website as they're used to. So they can still log into the back end of WordPress as they're used to. They just click one additional button, and then the website that everyone visits is an exact, exact replica, but no database, and that means these sites We've seen speed increases up to 16 times, which is critical today. Google keeps shouting from the mountaintops about how important speed is. And all these vulnerabilities become irrelevant. So I was like, this is something that we need to, I need to do. And um, now, just to understand, yeah. I mean, how is it that you're able to cut this piece away if it's, again, I'm, I'm obviously very much a layman, a non-techie. How are you able to cut this critical piece away if that's storing all the information and obviously you know, it's there for a reason. Um, I'm sure if people before you could have cut it, you know, knew how to do that, they would have, right? Because people, I assume, know that this is where the vulnerabilities and the slow, slow down lies. So, so how is it able to do that without, you know, and still have the information there? Excellent question. Because of my background and I know what clients need, so the way that we built it is a way that is easy for everyone to digest. Um, and I'll explain how it works. Basically, the original website still exists, but it's only accessible to the site owner. Um, they have to be authenticated by our system in order to then log into their backend and make changes. The reason for that is that the vast majority of website hacks are done by bots, actually. They're automatic bots that are sent out into the web knowing what vulnerabilities there are, and they'll go site, site, until they find one with a vulnerability, and then they'll get in. We, those bots can't even access our sites. To them, these sites don't exist. And that means that even if a site that we have on our platform is vulnerable or even infected already, it doesn't matter because the boss just can't get there. So that continues to exist. And then when the user presses our additional Stratic button, uh, the, the startup's called Stratic, then it generates, that's where our magic sauce happens, um, our special sauce, whatever. It, runs on the site and it creates essentially like a snapshot and a replica of the site which we serve up somewhere else and so it just it takes all of the front part and serves it as files so the back end is still there it just requires yeah. a login and then exactly 
you, you're able to actual front end is, is a sort of a facsimile of that. Right, exactly. So wow. that's, that's how it works and that's how we're able to achieve it while retaining the user experience, no change in user behavior, but a super secure, and we add other security goodies um, to it and speed goodies actually. So it's like almost the fastest, most secure website that um, anyone can have. So that's, that's what we do with Stratic. Very cool, so you just had this idea. What did you do once you had the idea, the concept? How did you kind of jump into actually making it happen? So I started to like think about it and I, I met someone at one of our client companies um, at Illuminea and we had a meeting about their website and then when everyone else had left the room, I, we started talking about WordPress and the issues and I said, you know, I've had this idea. He's like a genius engineer. And he, I, I told him, and he's like, that's brilliant. And he started to like brainstorm with me. We didn't end up working together because he wasn't able to leave his position right. for various reasons. But having such a smart person be so enthusiastic. Validate your yeah, concept. It was yeah. a, a really significant validation for me. I was like, okay, all right. So this seems, and he like had some ideas. And then um, I saw ad advertisements for a local Jerusalem accelerator called SIFTEC that they were open for applications. Like it was around the same time. And I was like, I'm gonna apply and see what happens. So I applied and I got accepted. Um, they accept like 12 startups. And I was like, okay, another group of smart people seem to think that this is something that not only is a good idea, but also has, you know, market. Right, what, what's the know? monetization strategy there? Is it basically you're selling it as if you would sell? In other words, is it kind of the same thing as you were doing before, but just with a more secure and faster product? Or it's a completely different niche market? So it's very different because it's not a service. Like we're not like looking at each site and doing anything for that. It's something that's automatically applied to every site. Um, and it's, it replaces hosting. So it's like what is called software as a service. Uh, it's like a platform, replaces hosting plus, 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 like has many more benefits than your standard hosting package. Uh, and our clients pay us a monthly recurring Got it. So theoretically, it works hand in glove with what you've already done. Exactly. Just feed those clients right over to here and right, exactly. have them sign up for the service. Right, because it's everyone, another revenue stream. Everyone needs hosting. Although both companies are completely separate right. in terms of their structure. Um, and it's an ongoing revenue stream, whereas the WordPress, the building, I guess, is a one-time. Exactly. It's once-off project, occasional and project and right. some maintenance uh, contracts. But those maintenance contracts could also go to Stratic now. Everyone needs to host their website somewhere, right. and it might as well be with us. We, you get so many more benefits. And How much more expensive is it to do it on this, you know, this way? So we can put ourselves in terms of price on the level of what's called managed hosting. So you can have your standard hosting where they are like, here's a server, good luck to you. But many website owners, that's not good enough for them because they aren't technically savvy and they don't really know how to maintain their site. So there's something called managed hosting which adds value to the hosting, more support and things like that. So we go with that type of pricing mm -hmm. and from, in terms of that level, we are competitive. And just the, the same pricing with just with a much more attractive Right, product. like you're paying the same price and you can have total peace of mind. Like for example, one of our clients is a cyber company, an Israeli cyber company. Now they're geniuses. Right. They totally know how to secure everything and anything, but the website is a marketing tool for them and they just, they don't they're want to They're not investing their genius in that exactly. area. Exactly, right? that's not where they want to put it. But at the same time, they cannot afford for their site to be hacked even for a second. That would look terrible. So they migrated to Stratic and they have peace of mind. Their site will not get hacked because no bots can access it and the static serverless version that is served up to the internet is basically impenetrable. So they're happy. So right. they pay what they would have paid, but they get much more value. They get much more. So you're in this accelerator and they liked you. And I mean, 
I mean, the truth is, why did you even need an accelerator? I mean, it sounds like you have this great idea. You have the tech savvy, built it up, and and start selling it. I mean, you, you, you're deeply enmeshed in the website marketing world, so you could easily have sold your product on your own. What do you need an accelerator for? Um, what was kind of the value there for you? So even though I've been managing a services business for 12 years, going the startup model is very different. And I didn't know it well. We had worked with startups as clients, but I didn't really know how that world works. Um, I knew that in order to build something that was hugely scalable and would make a huge impact, I would need to raise funding, for example. I had never raised funding before. What goes into that? How do you do that? You know, business models, pitch decks, um, meeting the VCs, how to talk to VCs, how to clearly communicate what it is that you're doing and the value, uh, all of that is what you get out of an accelerator. So you could have done, you could have built the, the apparatus, so to speak, on your own or without that and just sold it individually to companies. But if you wanted to make it a much larger scale kind of thing, you needed the expert right. advisement of, of these accelerators. Exactly. And what these accelerators do, after Siftech, I applied to Mass Challenge, which is where we are right now. Right. Um, that year they were opening for the first time in Israel. Mass Challenge is originated in Boston. Um, it's the mass. Exactly, the okay, mass. I thought it was, you know, I was trying to come up with some different, you know, well, it could go deeper meanings, right. you know, mass challenge. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, mass, just Massachusetts. <laughs> it could be massive, but it's really Massachusetts. Um, they were coming to Israel. They had opened branches in Switzerland, Mexico. That's the names of the meeting rooms, ah, by the way. Okay, we're, we're sitting now in the Switzerland room, by the right. way. Uh, a very neutral room. Yeah, very neutral. <laughs> Great banking services. Um, so Switzerland, Mexico, UK, um, and of course in the States, and they had decided to open a branch in Israel, and they chose to open it in Jerusalem, which is amazing for the Jerusalem tech ecosystem. Yes, and it's, was was that a deliberate choice to come to Jerusalem and not Tel Aviv, which is kind of the, the standard landing spot? I think so. So, I mean, it definitely was, and from what I understand, so first of all, you could be yet another accelerator in Tel Aviv. I think there's like something like 150 or 200 there, huh. and in Jerusalem, there's maybe a handful. So you could stand out here. Um, also, Jerusalem, over the last five, six years, thanks to the efforts of a few visionary people who are like, Jerusalem can be a tech ecosystem too, started branding Jerusalem, and the municipality got on board with this idea that having a strong tech ecosystem in Jerusalem is good for everybody. Right. For the city. That's where now is that has hosting a lot of companies, is that? So Harachotzfim was almost where tech originated in Jerusalem. It's kind of like the old style tech companies okay. now. Um, Jerusalem still has to kind of like figure itself out. So there's Harachotzfim, there's Malcha, next to the mall, there's a tech uh, park there. Talpiot has become like a place for a lot of startups, which is interesting. And WeWork is going to be opening in the center of town, close to here. I think that also will have a huge impact. So all of these things are changing and moving, and the municipality is investing in this. Um, and I think rightfully so. And I think the municipality encouraged Mass Challenge to come here. This building is very interesting. It's a historic building called the Lions House. And it's actually uh, going to become a boutique hotel. Really? So we're here kind of This is temporary. a temporary... Yeah. And wow. it's a it's for a, pres, uh, a, bit, a building for preservation or whatever you call it. Like historical, historical building, building. Right. So until they can build this boutique hotel, they need like a thousand authorizations and things because <laughs> they're limited in what they can do. And the real estate developers kind of donated this building to Mass Challenge. It's and probably a tax write-off for him. Or it could, well. yeah, yeah, it could be. So that's why, that's, that's what ha the story is with this building. And it's made a huge impact on the local tech ecosystem, bringing more startups to Jerusalem. 
more startups to stay in Jerusalem, more funding to Jerusalem startups. And what didn't you have in the original accelerator that you got here? I mean, did you finish there and come here? Is this a different stage of development? What's sort of the interplay between those two? So for me, and it can be different for everybody, but for me, the the SIFTEC accelerator was like super early stage. Me by myself with an idea, now what do I do with it? And I was still also working a lot on Illuminae, my previous company, to support myself. Yeah. I felt like at the end of SIFTEC, I got to the stage where I was ready to apply to Mass Challenge. I had more material, more vision, more idea of what I needed to do. And I was then also able to start recruiting people to join me. And so I applied to Mass Challenge. Mass Challenge, every um, cohort gets like 500 applicants and they accept around 50. And then I got accepted and I was like, wow. And what Mass Challenge offers that SIFTEC doesn't is that it's an international accelerator. So the network is huge. In terms of funding sources. And just everything, mentors. We have access to the dashboard, which gives us access to every person connected to Mass Challenge around the world. Wow. So you can really find people in your industry, reach out to them and get advice, guidance, support, introductions, whatever. So that's what I was looking for here as well. And they provide you with introductions to VCs or how does it work with, in terms of fu sourcing funding? So uh, at that time, less. I'm not sure how much they do that now. But the VCs definitely come here. Like while we were in the accelerator, we pitched a number pitched of VCs. Them. Yeah, they came. And they, they invest where they like it. Yeah, generally, just so people know, VCs that come to an accelerator and hear a bunch of pitches, they don't generally tend to invest. That's in. what I'm wondering if they're more coming as a kind of like practice fodder, so to speak. I think it's more like that. And it really was good experience to have to present ourselves in a good way to potential investors and get their feedback also and learn from that process. So that program was, I think, four months. But since then, I've continued, and we as a company have continued to be part of the Mass Challenge community. They're very helpful even after the program. And we still sit here in the accelerator space. Give you the space and everything. Yeah, it's really incredible. Nice. Really nice. Yeah. That is awesome. So, so would you say that the Mass Challenge, you said is a more advanced stage, is that more what they call like an incubator at that point? Or I don't know, the terminology is kind of hard to totally. put down. But I mean, now I know what these words mean. Right. I did not know what they mean. So an incubator, at least in Israel, is government funded. So huh. yeah, it's generally a partnership between a VC fund and the government's chief scientist office, what's now called the Innovation Authority. They changed their name. And you get accepted to it and you get part of your funding from the fund and far, part of it from the government. And they have a lot of requirements. And does the government the take equity in your company? Not equity. The government has a lot of funding options in Israel. That's one of the reasons it's amazing, by the way, to be a startup in Israel. I bootstrapped Stratic for so long because of all the facilities and resources that were available to me as a startup. Mass Challenge is just one example. Yeah. Um, so the government has different funding options which you can apply to. They don't take equity. Their terms generally are something like it's a very long-term loan. When you start to make revenue, you have to pay it back to a certain extent. They're not crazy about anything. They're not like, you must pay it all back now that you're making $5 a month. No, it's not anything like that. They're generally pretty reasonable considering their government. Um, one of their conditions is that if you have an exit and you're acquired by a non-Israeli entity, then you have to pay them. It's kind of like a fine for the IP being transferred out of Israel. Exit fee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because their whole goal is to make sure that IP and innovation stays in the Israel. creating right? jobs here and all exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So that's their investment. It's in the country. And it makes a huge difference. I don't know how many countries have these types of resources available to them. Um, so yeah, and there's actually special benefits to being a Jerusalem startup also. Huh. Yeah. 
more recently that's like uh, because of the municipalities investing? So when the municipality woke up, the municipality's attitude has always been the great economic engine for Jerusalem is tourism, which is true. Right. But then they were like, okay, something else also. Also, I mean, considering Israel being what it is, tourism can take a dip, right, at certain times. You need something else going on here. Um, so there's an, a special unit in the municipality called JNext, which is all about supporting the tech ecosystem. And so they help us startups communicate with the government, identify where we can get some benefits. So for example, there's benefits on Arnona, the municipal tax and rent and even employment and employment for special uh, demographics like Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox or Arabs. They'll kick in for part of that salary even? Yeah, or? yeah so wow. different things like that. So you can, bring, you can onboard somebody for a fraction of Right, work. like you have to meet certain criteria and it has right. to be after a certain amount of time. But um, there's all sorts of things like that that really help startups get much farther on much less. It's really incredible. That is, that is amazing. So how's the company done? What's the, where is it now in its, in its development? Well, Startup Land, which is what I call it, because it's like Alice in Wonderland sometimes. <laughs> You're like the rabbit hole. Um, you know, it's, it's a roller coaster. But now, thank God, we're in a pretty good place. We raised angel funding. Um, and they do take equity. They do take equity, yeah. uh, rightfully so. Of course, it's all legitimate. Yeah. But today, investors are not, also, they're also not insane. Like, we met one investor who was like, I want 50% of your company. And we were like, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> this is not also, Shark Tank, man. <laughs> no, and also, it's not in your benefit. Like, if we're not motivated to do yeah, you, you got 50% of nothing. Right. So our investors are actually wonderful, really nice people. Um, two of them are American. One is an Are they American public Israeli. or it's, these are private? Um, I can't mention all of them, That's but I'll fine. tell you one. So it's two American, one is out of Palo Alto, really wonderful person. Silicon very Valley, supportive. yeah. yeah. Uh, New York, one American Israeli here with a micro fund. His name is Aaron Zucker. His fund is called Sapir Ventures. Wonderful, supportive uh, investor. And another Israeli investor. And our latest investor is very exciting. His name is Zev Saraski, and he is one of the co-creators of the PHP programming language. PHP is the language that powers WordPress. All, most of the open source platforms, 70% of the internet at least runs on PHP. He invented it. Wow. And we met with him. And it's him. a Jewish guy. Israeli. Israeli guy, wow. He's okay. founded a company called Zend, um, and they basically made PHP into what it is. And we went to meet with him just because he's so tied to our industry, and he ended up investing, which is super exciting. So That's great, and that's yeah. also talking about validation. Oh, total validation, yeah. yeah. I mean, if he had just come on board as an advisor, we would have been thrilled, but as an investor, it's, it's real validation. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's been an exciting um, update. And we have a team now that we've recruited, great people, uh, mostly in Israel. One of our team members is someone I've actually known through the WordPress community for a long time. He's in Berlin, a oh. uh, great addition to our team. And, and these are all tech-oriented people, or some of them are just kind of straight-up business marketing, that kind of thing? So most are tech. Yeah. Uh, my partner, Josh Lawrence, uh, who you met, he's business. Okay. Um, and a lot of the stuff related to operations, so like the recruiting, is amazing at that, and the fundraising. Uh, me, I'm all over the place. I'm like, <laughs> I have a lot of my hands in everything. You're the big visionary. <laughs> how, do you, how do you go about fundraising? I mean, you, you just pretty much get contacts with VCs and, and go in and pitch them? Is it as simple as that? Or? So first of all, you need to get an introduction. That's something that uh, we learned along the way, and we got very high quality introductions to VCs. The mistake that we made is that we were 
approaching VCs at too early a stage. A lot of VCs will say we invest. There's various stages. Right, of stages, funding. right? Series, series A, pre-seed, and then seed, and then A and B. And the definitions of each are pretty fluid, but they generally mean something like where you're at as a. How company. many like how many subscribers you have at a certain point? Exactly. Revenue, you know, revenue positive, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. How much revenue are you making every month? How many users do you have? Are you at MVP stage, the minimum viable product stage, or are you actually like have you launched publicly? All these things matter. We were talking to VCs at too early a stage, and the VCs are not clear enough to newbies like we were, or I was, um, that when they say they invest in pre-seed, they mean one in a million, they'll invest in pre-seed. Right. So we met with like top VCs, had good meetings, moved to second, third stage, and then generally the answer was you're too early stage. So come back. Come back when you have this amount of revenue and this amount of And I imagine users. you did. So we will. Yeah. We're not necessarily You're not there, there yet. Okay. Um, and then we realized that we have to, this is not the right route. And so the angel funding route, which is individuals who invest in early stage startups, um, that was the correct route for us. So yeah. So and they'll take a higher premium than a VC? Typical, not typical necessarily. VC? No? No. No, really not necessarily. Interesting. Isn't they, there a much greater risk at that early stage? There's, there's a greater risk, but they're not unreasonable. But right. they definitely can get more for their investment at that time because the risk is so much higher. Yeah. Um, it just is a matter of meeting investor or VC after VC, getting feedback from them, learning how to improve your pitch, improve how you're talking about what you're talking about, what works better. And it's like a funnel. You just meet a lot of them until it clicks with someone. It's almost like dating. Right. <laughs> it really right. is. Because it's also <laughs> very, it it's very emotional. It's like what speaks to one investor doesn't speak to another, and you never know. Yeah. You know, like some can find it exciting that this is a woman-led startup, and others can find it uncomfortable, even subconsciously, right? Um, mostly that's the way it goes, not the positive. I thought you were going to say that it's a Canadian, but okay. <laughs> well, in Israel, it's not a joke. Like in Israel, we are almost like, uh, in Hebrew, there's like a saying, of Muzar, we're like a strange chicken. We're not guys, like I'm not a guy at least. Uh, we're not between the ages of 25 and 35. We didn't graduate from certain elite units in the army, intelligence units. We're in Jerusalem and we're Anglos. Most of us on the team are not native Israelis. So. Investors don't always know what to do with well, that. Well, and it sounds like you've gotten foreign investors, perhaps as a result Yeah, of that. I think so. They're more open to looking outside of the stereotype of the startup founder. Yeah. What is the potential for a company like this? And, and what do you actually even need additional funding for? In other words, I understand bringing on a team and you know building out the product and so forth. But at a certain point, if you have a great product and it works, and so is it just marketing dollars to get make sure the world knows about this thing? Like, what, what actually is the funding for, and then where could it take you? So first of all, we need to grow out our team a lot more. We need to hire more engineers, more developers, in order to be developing faster and be adding the features that we need. We also need support. We need support personnel. Today, in my opinion, software as a service is only as good as the support and the experience that the so user gets. So you need like a customer service center. Like center, yeah. people who are really, in the tech world, it's called customer success. Making sure that our customers are successful with our product. We need that. And then when we're ready to really scale out and launch, we're going to need huge marketing dollars. That's just how it is. If you want to take over the world, which we do, then it costs money. <laughs> and then, of course, there's server costs and infrastructure costs, right. you know, and everything that goes around it. What so, would you do to, quote, unquote, take over the world? And how would you get your message out there? If someone came and said, all right, here's, you know, $100 million for marketing, go, what would you do? Wow, there's so many things that we would do. I mean, we would 
obviously do, okay, we would do content marketing, paid marketing, so paid advertising, Facebook and Google. Conferences, conferences are huge. There's still the need for the personal connection. Right. I speak quite frequently at WordPress conferences around the world. We were just in Serbia. For, Those sound thrilling, by the way. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> It's like heaven for geeks. I'm telling you, we're all thrilled to be there. It's like a Star Trek conference convention, except for you know, for WordPress people. Do people dress up as different, you know, code or something? Like that? Actually, there were people dressed up there. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> you've got it all. It's it is very geeky, but um, but there's that personal connection and connecting with influencers and getting people on board and testimonials. There's like a lot of work to be done in order to scale it out. Um, but ultimately, the name of the game for you guys is just getting tons of subscribers? Tons of subscribers. People onboarding. Right now, our, autom our onboarding is not fully automated. We need to fully automate that so that people can just come to our site, click a few buttons, and be you our have to client. call anyone or anything. Right. Is, I mean, I, I guess it's really, if, if something is you know, like subscription-based, then it's really kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat. In other words, you just need to get in front of every single person who has a high-end website. Right, exactly. Or any kind of website. Like right now, we're targeting, let's say, mid-level enterprise or whatever, SMBs, but like on the higher end. Um, eventually we could theoretically, because uh, of the scalability of our platform and the cheapness of running static sites, we could scale out eventually also to smaller sites. Like we could potentially do everything at some point. At the moment we've got our focus. Um, we just, we have to get in front of everybody with a WordPress website essentially. Um, right now our target audience specifically right. and get them to click the button and, and join Stratic. How long of a process do you project that, that to be in your kind of your vision? I mean, if you look at other hosting companies like GoDaddy, right? Right. So I envision us bypassing GoDaddy. Wow. <laughs> Taking All right. Away. I got to switch. It's funny because I was just on GoDaddy the other, the other day. You know, your thing is up for renewal or whatever. Right. Know, like GoDaddy is five bucks a year for whatever. When, when people think domains or hosting, they think GoDaddy, That's right? It. That's what we, God willing, wow. will be. Um, GoDaddy's been around, I don't know, 15 years. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's going to take us 15 years or anything like that. I mean, they're putting, you know, Super Bowl ads, and I mean, that's, you know, right. that's crazy ad dollars. Right, crazy. Um, there's a cut there. If you look at the bigger startup tech companies in Israel, and they're not necessarily startups anymore that are approaching the billion dollar valuation, they've been around for eight years, 10 years. Sure. Um, so, you know, it takes a while for global domination to happen. <laughs> <laughs> But um, God willing, the idea is to see hockey stick growth. That like we will be growing significantly right. from year to year, month to month. That people will just be clamoring right. to join Stratic because it's such a great user experience and solution. You know. Right. I'm just glad your passion is WordPress and not something more nefarious because <laughs> world domination. Would, <laughs> I know it's true. I feel like there's some things that could be, you know, very scary. <laughs> yeah. You know, with your right. with your enthusiasm and passion. <laughs> um, you touched on this briefly, but I want to kind of start to close with an, a sense of what your experience is like as, as a woman, um, and particularly maybe a, a religious woman, and just in general, in, in this very male-dominated space. I imagine it's less than it once was, but still very, you know, with a very heavily male-dominated industry. Um, I know there's a lot of emphasis nowadays on women in STEM and things like that, but that being, I would imagine it still, still exists, that, that imbalance. So what's that experience like for you? Have you had any difficult experiences, awkward experiences, or is it more kind of are people inspired or people you know, motivated and excited by what you're doing? So when I got into tech, I was like, I have an advantage because I'm a woman-led company and people keep talking about it's how much- It's a story. Right, it's a story. And also people keep talking about how important it is to have more women in tech. And so I imagined that people would support it. 
on the accelerator level, definitely. The, the accelerators and the mentors, and many of them are definitely men. Um, Put the men in mentor, right? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the women have to be women's doors. <laughs> Doesn't sound um, good. No, no, no. Um, there's, there's definitely support for that, and they're proud of their women founders. Right. But when it comes to investors, it's a whole other story. Uh-huh. Because the bottom line is that you are asking them to open their wallets, and that is a very painful thing for people to do. And they need to feel very connected to you and a huge amount of trust in you before they do that. And when everyone that they've invested in before you is a guy who looks a certain way, and then you walk in and you're a woman and you're a religious woman, I don't hide that I'm a religious woman. I made a conscious decision at one point in my career to wear a headscarf, not a wig. I'm proud of who I am and people can take it or leave it. That's kind of my attitude. Good for you. Um, and it's worked out well. It's kind of like my brand. It helps me stand out in a crowd, that is for sure, <laughs> because the crowds definitely don't look like me. Um, but it doesn't work in our favor with regards to investing. But that's okay. We're not the first people who don't look a certain way who are trying to achieve something. And as we have seen, we've managed to get investors on board, thank God, who believe in us and what we're doing. So we'll see how it goes when we get back to the VCs for those funding rounds. Um, but there's a lot of talk about supporting women and less walk. It doesn't necessarily translate into reality. So there's work to be done there. Um, one of the things is that the investors are all men. So I was going to ask. I mean, are there inve- there there are wealthy women out there? You know, there are. So are there any you know angelettes? <laughs> Remember they're out like, there. Very few. Also, like a handful, at least in Israel. What we need is more women in tech more women to have exits and more women to become investors. And then they will give women founders the opportunity. Do you find a lot of the investors are former people who had exits themselves? Absolutely. Okay. They're like former entrepreneurs, former, you know, people who had exits, um, especially the angel investors, uh, but in the VCs as well, they come from that type of So it's not just like a wealthy real estate guy who's no, coming to invest? No, not in Israel. And I think that it's the right approach. It's good because they get. Well, they know they, they know what to invest in probably better. Right, and they really understand what it is to be an entrepreneur. But still, it's all men investing in all men. I go to conferences, particularly cyber conferences. I'll be the only woman if I'm pitching on the stage, by far, and often the only woman in the crowd. At one point, I started thinking of having the hashtag me and all the men or something and taking selfies of myself at all these men only uh, events, yeah. especially in Tel Aviv. The diversity there is almost non-existent. You go to a tech event there, it's all men. Why do you think that is? I think it starts at a young age. Um, for some reason, young boys are more drawn or more directed towards tech. And then in the army, for some reason, the tech units recruit more men. There's been a big, something that I think is very significant that happened in Israel now this year, which is the to graduate high school, you do something called Bagrut, Bagrut which is matriculation. Yeah. And there's different levels that you can do, different points for, let's say, math and physics. And the highest level is five. And until this year, um, 30% of the, it was like something like 30% were girls uh, that chose to do it, and the other percent was boys who chose to do five units. It It was something like that. This year it was 50-50, practically, girls and boys, thanks to a campaign by the Minister of Education, Naftali Bennett. And that's where I think it starts, in high school, where girls are encouraged to study these tech-related subjects. My daughter just graduated grade 12, did five units in math, five units in physics. She says it's not because of Bennett, but I remember when he started his campaign, it became a conversation in our house. And that's where it starts. And I think in five, 10 years, we'll start to see more and more women in these. Uh, so you have your next employee, right, built in. I know, except for she hates computers. So. Oh no, terrible. <laughs> I don't know. But her and many other girls just did that and accomplished that. 
So that's where it starts. And then we'll see more tech founders, we'll see more exits, and we'll see more investors, and, and I think that will have an impact. Right. It's uh, still a long way to go, but it yeah. sounds like uh, there's hope, and it sounds like you are getting, you, know, you are being met with some success, and perhaps you'll be the one with that tremendous exit to be able to, uh, you know, when GoDaddy buys you out. <laughs> right. I do have to give a huge amount of credit on the fundraising side to Josh Lawrence, my partner. Huge. I was gonna, what I was going to ask, does it help having a male yes. partner that helps? <laughs> So I knew I needed a male partner, but Josh is obviously more than just a guy. Of course. <laughs> I need an ex-wife. Right, I just needed like a male. Pull the guy off the street of the show. You know? no, I've been very lucky that Josh joined me. Um, he's really good on the fundraising side. Together, the two of us make a good impression. On what, makes him, what makes him good at, at what he does? Vision. He's, I'm, because I'm tech-oriented, I tend to get bogged down in the details of like what this code is going to do to that server. Yeah. And he can talk bigger vision, and that's really what investors want to yeah. hear. They this want will to change the, the web. To, yeah, like we're going to change the web. He also is very passionate about the environment. So what we're doing uses, people don't know this, the server industry, like cloud servers. Right, there's this huge thing somewhere, sitting somewhere. Right, right? it's not cloud. Like, this is cloud. Oh, it's like giant, and they use so many resources. They have the second biggest carbon, no, they have a bigger carbon output footprint or whatever than the aviation industry. Servers. Wow. We don't even realize what's going on. And our solution uses way less resources. So it means that we'll even have a positive environmental impact. And you know that's also part of Josh's vision. And so he brings that. And then I bring the tech side and I bring it down to like kind of reality in that right. uh, combination really, really works. But yeah, he's, uh, he's had a huge impact on, on our fundraising. So. Sounds incredible. Well, Miriam, this is a really inspiring story. And um, I hope that you'll really inspire uh, <laughs> generations of the next uh, women your daughter's age and, and below and to, to get into tech and to build their own companies. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll hope to watch your company uh, grow and uh, have its moment in the sun and when you can become the arbiter and, and the one who's funding and not only funding, but then you know you can become a, a donor to other things as well, right, like exactly. wonderful uh, Jewish causes. Yeah, <laughs> no, a, really, uh, it's part of my Philanthropist and the whole, everything that comes with that. Yeah, so Miriam Schwab, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.